everybody, and welcome back to another edition of the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast presented by Dream Cricket. I'm your host, Peter Dalapena, and on today's episode, we get to part three, the final part of the Jason Fox trilogy. We discussed his experiences as a member of the USA Under-15 national team, developing his cricket and growing up in Wichita, Kansas, and the challenges that that presented to try and get noticed and picked and succeed as a player on the USA Junior circuit. And then we started to go into a little bit more about the cultural barriers as well as the geographical barriers that he has experienced as a member of the USC cricket community, as well as his early experiences coming to work for ESPN Cricket Info at the ESPN Worldwide Headquarters in Bristol, Connecticut in the summer of 2014. And on today's episode, we go a little bit deeper into Jason Fox's warts and all memories of his time at ESPN in Connecticut that spanned from the summer of 2014 until November of 2015 when his contract ended and he went back to the family business in Wichita, Kansas. We'll go a little bit deeper into that as well as a bit of time talking about his family's connection to Mohibullah Archibald. Again, for people who haven't read the story that Jared Kimber wrote back in 2017 for the Cricket Monthly, The Shahid Afridi of Kansas. If you haven't read it, go read it. It's one of Jared's finest pieces. But before we get to the final part of the Jason Fox interview, I want to remind everybody that the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast presented by Dream Cricket is also sponsored by Moose the Cricket Stadium, the first and original turf wicket facility in the state of Texas. For more information, call 713-534-2195. That's Moose the Cricket Stadium in Pearland, Texas. 2015 World Cup was memorable in terms of the exposure that ESPN was able to provide people within the U.S. having a major rights event to the U.S. market. That was what was shown outward internally. I think it was one of the most challenging experiences I've ever gone through because for people who, who would not know, in Connecticut, I think it was two days or three days before the start of the World Cup, we had a monumental blizzard in Bristol that dropped about 35 or 40 inches of snow. And then it kept on snowing periodically over the next six to seven weeks. From the start of the World Cup until the final ball was bowled, there was snow on the ground in Bristol. There was never a moment where there was longer. There, there was never a moment where there was not snow on the ground. And I felt so bad. There was five or six guys who were flown over from, from Bangalore, from the Indian office, to come help doing highlights cutting throughout the World Cup. And those guys, it was not an ideal Introduction. Well, so you want to know something that's an eye opener is when somebody from like a developing nation tells you that uh, your work environment is too is not hospitable enough to you, and then you're like, oh my god, are we the suckers here? Now let me say this: I loved it. I would work every second of overtime I could get it because like the job is like watching cricket and making videos for people to see, and it's awesome. Literally, there are days where there's like two or three cricket matches on. And you're like watching all of them and your job is to watch one and cut the video for that game. What could be better than that? Like I'm getting paid to watch cricket and like create videos about cricket. Like pretty sweet. Honestly, it's still sweet when I think about it. Uh, so I would spend literally every second. They were like, oh, you're working too much overtime. And I'm like, but there's so much cricket content that we could be cutting. We gotta have the clips, man. Gotta have all the clips. Even when during the World Cup, even when I wasn't at work, I was uh, living that same schedule watching the games. I was so pissed that I didn't work the South Africa, New Zealand semifinal because it was an incredible game. And I was like sitting at home watching it by myself instead of in the office, like in the ESPN office for the very first time with an office full of people that were excited about cricket. 
was the biggest letdown of the entire tournament for me is that I was at home for that semifinal. But it's overnights. It's cold. Overnights at ESPN is incredibly difficult because there's nothing to eat. There's nothing to drink. Well, You're completely stranded. Well, I got to cut in here too because and this was, I have to say, this was a frustration of mine. The ESPN cafeteria, the first year I was there, was one of the most enjoyable, maybe even my favorite part of ESPN was the ESPN cafeteria. Pasta Tuesdays or something, right? And <laughs> that, But more than like Pasta Tuesdays, late night, when I would work overnights for cricket that first winter when I was doing the New Zealand home rides. And so, for example, when I did, I think it was Corey Anderson's record-breaking century, I cut the highlights for that. And uh, on New Year's Day 2014, I think it was, you know, I'm, I'm working from, you know, the New Zealand matches are starting at either 5 p.m. or 7 p.m., depending if it's a test match or one day or whatever, 5 p.m., 7 p.m. local time. And so I'm there until 3, 4, 5 a.m. cutting highlights. The overnight crew who with the cafeteria, I, I was like best friends with those people. Those people saved me, man. You would go there. Now, you'd have your typical designated meal times in the ESPN cafeteria, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. But then overnight, late night, the chefs there, they would cook you stuff fresh to order. So I could go there at midnight, 1 a.m., 2 a.m., and get a hamburger, two hamburgers, or, or I could get chicken chicken breasts, a chicken sandwich, whatever, fresh fresh grilled chicken, and they make it fresh. I was like so indebted to those people for helping me get through those nights. But literally just after you joined, it was right in the middle. I never of the, even got to go. I never yeah, got to. I never right went in the middle to of the, Right in the middle of the 2014 FIFA World Cup, they shut down the main cafeteria at ESPN for renovations. Invest, I don't know how many, how many millions of dollars, how much money they was going to put into it, but they were going to have this state-of-the-art like projection screens and some other stuff to have in, in terms of like ancillary benefits to the cafeteria itself, aside from the grills and the ovens and all, which is all like five-star high-grade industry standard stuff. But I can't tell you how many people, both at ESPN FC, because it happened right in the middle of the FIFA World Cup. And then furthermore, the, the staff that was going to be working the Cricket World Cup, we were devastated because that we, we depended on that stuff. Anybody who was working overnight shifts, you relied on that. And to have it cut out from us was crippling. And the, I think to, to one of our colleagues' point and um, about how like actually like not good the work environment was, is like it, peep, the, the powers that be were so put off by the idea that like, they should maybe provide some food or like some other accommodation to us. Like it was like, we were asking for like a lot, like a lot, a lot. And had it been literally like any other property at ESPN, if there were overnights, that would not, I truly believe that would not have been the case, but because we were shoved into a corner, into this basement, nobody could see or hear us. It was not a problem. And it took somebody from like, you know, the other office coming here and be like, Whoa, guys, this is not correct and to get some attention and even still like it didn't fix the, the main problem yeah there was some more food around and some other things which was like super helpful because you're going in at seven o'clock and you're there until i mean the amount of times i saw the sun up and i got out of work and then the sun was just coming up was like a lot and often during that time and that is the start of when i was like you know there's like there's really not much for me here actually there's no future for cricket at espn for me and maybe for nobody else after that as far as like the main headquarters goes why did you feel that way so here's the deal was there was there like one moment in particular that was the tipping point for you that you were like this isn't what i expected or this isn't what i signed up for the amount so and this is something we haven't talked about yet and um you know i'm gonna say what i felt at the time and 
we'll just I'll just put it out there. Like the the structure of Crick Info is very strange to me. So for people that don't know, you have ESPN based in Bristol, Connecticut, that owns the property, right? At the time that we were all involved at Bristol, we, uh, there was there were there are like ad salespeople for the United States market. There are managers that have pull over content, both written and video, and us creating video content in the United States. So that's group number one. Group number two is the England office, which I actually don't know how big it is, but it can't be more than like ten people at like specifically for Crick Info. And then I'm sure like there are ESPN properties in the UK that people floated in between, but specifically for Krig Info, it's no video content and it's solely writers to my knowledge. So the ESPN Crick Info presence in London is essentially, they have part of a floor in the Disney building. And that building is a conglomerate of like, you've got ESPN FC staff, other ESPN staff, other Disney staff, and it's, I don't know how, how big the building is. It's seven, eight, nine, ten 10 stories, maybe. But in terms of how many Crick Info employees are in that building, it takes up maybe two or three rows of cubicles. And that's, that's the London presence of Crick Info. So, so you have that. And they do everything England. Uh, so, like, England is, like, English cricket news and, like, surrounding spheres of influence, as well as, like, picking up any other editorial content across the board, in my experience. So you have those two groups and then you have India, which is like its whole other thing. Obviously India drives the most traffic. They have the most staff. They've got video, they've got writers, they've got editors. They have probably salespeople, maybe even like infrastructure people for the website and stuff that I'm probably not even thinking about. So you have these three groups and these three groups are constantly competing with each other to do to, on anything, literally. If one group says they wanna do something, the other two groups are in opposition. It seems like to me constantly, all the time. Nobody can ever agree. And to me, I'm sitting here, I've grown up with ESPN. They're the leader in worldwide sports. I don't understand why they're tolerating this. Honestly, guys, we, we own this, we sign the checks, like you do what we tell you to. And that is not the way it runs. I mean, I met Sambit once. He has a very particular way of which he thinks about Crick Info. I saw him clap back at DeBell on Twitter. I thought that that was wrong of him. Uh, I mean, like, not wrong of him in the sense that, like, you shouldn't do that, but, like, I think it opened him up to some criticism. And the dysfunction at which these three offices communicate in general and specifically in regard to the role of the U.S. video office, I could never understand. So this is the process for how we would create a video. Let's just talk about a highlight. Watch the game cut a highlight, you put it up. As an editor, I get to choose like the title of the video and like the caption, the couple sentences that describes what's in the video. Before that is posted to the website, somebody from the India or England office, because they are the only two places that have like editorial control. There's no like writers at, in the United States or editors. They get to decide if that's okay before it goes on the website or not. So you literally have to put an email out to all these people and say like, hey, I put this video in the system. Can you please check it and then publish it? And they would say, yep, got it, or change whatever, and then they would publish it to the website. Now, if we put together like a news package, that was completely different because if they didn't like it or they didn't think it held, held value to them, it just didn't go up. And they were also very combative about like doing that job. I don't know David Hops. I read his stuff. I read his stuff on The 100. 
he's a great writer. I'll give him that. I have disagreements about what he has to say in regards to cricket sometimes. But like the amount of like pushback I got from hops on some of the stuff I wanted to do, I was like, I don't understand this. Number one, I don't understand why this is happening. Number two, I don't understand why ESPN is tolerating this. I understand. I think that there was like some reluctance to video on a site that for the better part of its existence has been solely the written word and photographs. But what I never understood and I still don't understand today is like Mickey Mouse signs the checks. Mickey Mouse is in Bristol, Connecticut. Why are they tolerating any of this? Just to cut in here, I think a bunch of this stuff you're describing is normal editorial processes, whether that's at ESPN or anywhere else. And there's a but we're so far removed from it. We how would we know? Well, so here's I, well, I'll get to that. And I think this is where I, I feel understanding of, of what you're, you're illustrating is that when we would publish a video or we would edit a video or put together hides, yeah, we send it across and somebody checks it. And that's that's standard. That goes on in any operation. There's checks and balances. There has to be an editorial process where it's there's some fail saves. And if there's an error or whatever needs to be fixed, somebody can fix that before it goes live. And that's that's fine. Yeah, and if, right. Yeah. And if there's and if there's something like you said, you've got an idea or you, or you put something together and it gets rejected by David Hobbs or somebody else. And, and he was the UK editor at the time. So hey, he's the editor. He, he's in the hierarchy. He's, he's above you. So he can he has the power to reject you. And he's fully entitled to do that. I think where the issues came up were the fact that David Hobbs or somebody else for that matter is just seeing a name on a computer screen and he's not really identifying with who you are and what you do and how you've gone about doing something because he's never met you. And yeah, that, that I mean, is, that, that is, that was, I think for me, problem. that was my, that when I was in Connecticut, I think that was the number one issue that I experienced. And I think one of the best things that ever happened to me when I was in Connecticut was when I was sent to Bangalore for two weeks of partial training in terms of editorial processes and, and backend content management system stuff uh, to learn how to do that. But more importantly, it was simply just to meet, bond, build relationships with people in Bangalore who I had never met before. And they had never met me. They didn't know who the hell I am. All I am is just a name on an email that says Peter Delapena at, at ESPN.com. And here, you know, somebody sent this. And the relationships I built in that two-week period I spent in Bangalore are still very strong to this day with the people who are still on staff seven years later in India. There are certain people who I will call on or rely on if, if I need a favor or something comes up, it's spur of the moment or there's an emergency, whatever. There are certain people I know just because I met them in person and I, I was able to spend the two weeks. It may not sound like a lot, but they, they were very significant two weeks where I was able compared to, to compared to like what we had, which was absolutely nothing. It would have been groundbreaking for all of us. Yeah. And so that was the issue for, you know, you, you never had that. Kyle never had that as far as I know, where you're in a position where you're sending content out to people in England and India. They don't know who the hell you are. And that's the issue is, is the fact that it's a hell of a lot easier to say no to somebody or to brush somebody off or to reject what they're trying to do when you literally don't know who the hell they are and they're just a name on an email or a name on a screen whereas i and i i experienced that where i felt like a lot of the things i tried to generate content wise whether it was video or writing i felt like they started to get a lot more receptive to those things after i had gone to bangalore to meet everybody for the first time 
And so that's where the disconnect is. I felt during, during my time in Connecticut was the fact that, yeah, witnessing it or observing it for you or for Mm -hmm. Cahill or anybody else who came on uh, since then is the fact that this is, and this is something that Sambit was very big on when he wanted to fly me out to to Bangor for that two weeks. Initially I poo-pooed it. I was like, why the hell do I need to go to Bangor? This is kind of dumb. What, you know, he's like, Oh, we want to train you some stuff on the, on the back end of the website and to show you some other systems. I'm like, why the hell can't you just do that in a Skype uh, chat or, you know, nowadays you can do it on zoom. Uh, you know, why, do, why the hell do I need to, you know, spend X amount of dollars on a plane ticket to Bangor? It's kind of a waste of money. No, it, it's actually quite valuable. The importance of person to person, in-person interaction, which that sounds I've, like a strange take to me from you, even for the time. Who would say that? I don't know. Like why, why wouldn't you in the position that you were at want to go to meet the editor in chief of the website? Because, well, I'd met him before. He'd come to the U.S. Uh, okay, well, that's... I, I had met Sambit. I had met, at this point in time, I had met Sambit at least two or three times when he... Because he would come to the U.S. at least once or twice a year. And so I had met Sambit. He, he was basically the only person I had met, though, right? So I knew the editor-in-chief. He had come to meet me, uh, or when he was in the U.S., he didn't come to meet me. I'm not that important, right? Um, but, like, when he would be in the U.S. on his business trips... He would reach out to me to give me heads up to say, hey, I'm in the U.S. doing this other stuff. If you've got time to meet me, it would be great. And so we'd meet up. But literally, he was the only person I knew out of the India office. He was a very important person out of the India office, but he he was the only person I knew. And the rank and file staff, who arguably were more important for me to to know and interact with on a day-to-day basis, I didn't know them. And so the fact that when, when this trip happened in January, February 2014, it was hugely significant in my ESPN experience. And it still carries weight to this day. And so from the things you're telling me, I, I feel like it's something that arguably should have been made mandatory or something that really, if it could have been done for you, I think it would have improved your relationships with a lot of the staff, maybe not necessarily England, because you wouldn't have been sent to England and those staff, but, but at least with the India staff. Because again, who did you meet from the India staff? The only people you ever met were the five guys or six guys who came over from India during the World Cup. And like you said, they arrived. And at times it was serious uh, at best. They were good. Chaotic. They were like, yeah. It was chaotic at times. It was, I don't want to say hostile, but you had two very different cultures clashing. And there was not a lot of. Um, it's like the, when I, the when I say I cultures, I don't, I don't mean Indian culture. I mean just the word culture. If, no, work cultures. The, yeah. the, the culture in the Bangalore office, the work environment, the work culture is entirely, entirely different to the work environment, work culture in Connecticut. And part of that, again, is because, which I feel... Do, do you mean specifically for ESPN Crick Info, or do you feel like there are other places in no, ESPN no, that yeah, have like this, a similar... Yeah, no, so this is what I'm getting at. The, the work culture at, in, at the Crick Info offices in India is entirely, entirely different. And I felt at times it was actually more conducive to good work because... I'd agree. Because the entire office in India is all Crick Info staff. And so all the dialogue, all the language, all the conversations, all the interactions, everybody's on the same wavelength. Everybody's conversing in in the same manner and everything is understood. You don't have to communicate with other people, let's say in in Bristol, where again, we were sharing office space with ESPN FC or computer space or editing space. And so if there were times where there was a clash where there were only a certain amount of editing computers available and you had something that needed to get on and you were competing for space with ESPN FC, like, and there's only two of you down in the bunker, right? Whereas there's like seven, eight, nine ESPN FC staff, you're outnumbered. 
if you're crying for help or you're calling for help, hey, I need help, somebody to fight my battle for me, somebody to help convince, well, all right, you can send an SOS to Bangor. They can shout through their, their phone or shout through their Skype or shout through their G-chat as much as they want and try and shake their fist to say, hey, this is more important. But if you're face-to-face with somebody who's on the ESPN FC, FC side in front of you in the flesh in Connecticut and they're, they're pulling rank and saying, no, actually, we need this computer more. All, all those kind of interpersonal relationships made working in that building three in Connecticut so much more challenging than I think a lot of people realize or appreciate. I noticed Ranjit was like, well, why can't we just do this, this, and this? And I'm like, yeah, that would be great. But like, that's not the way it works here because of the structure that like a, a large business like ESPN needs to have. Like to do what they do to put television out and all the stuff that they got to do, like it makes sense to me that they have to do that. To me, it almost felt like Kirk Info still kind of had that like startup vibe in India at the very least, like a bunch of cricket fans and some very talented people that wanted to make like excellent cricket stuff. And that's like the kind of environment like I wanted to walk into, honestly. And at times, like we were able to create a little bit of that. And it was just like so disheartening to like to know that it's like literally I am a, a content manufacturer and there's like no life or soul in it is what it felt like towards the end get the clips up and that's really it there's like there's no love for cricket there's no care about like the local cricket community like something that keeps us all grounded like it just was after the world cup i was like they don't care about cricket there's no way to resolve these differences between the three offices because while espn has the espn united states has the money espn cricket info india really is the one that should drive the ship honestly and that will never happen. And England's kind of like in their own island, like doing their own thing. Because like they're they're between them, and they don't really. It doesn't really matter all that much. Like they can kind of just do what they want. It's unresolvable, I think personally. Today's episode of the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast, presented by Dream Cricket, is also sponsored by Musa Cricket Stadium, the first and original turf wicket facility in the state of Texas, and now one of the premier venues for the minor league cricket T20 franchise tournament. Located at 5515 McKeever Road in Pearland, five miles off the Bailey Road exit from State Route 288 and a half hour south of downtown Houston, Musa Cricket Stadium includes fully enclosed locker rooms and change rooms plus shower facilities after a day's play, as well as outdoor nets for all your training needs. For more information, call 7 713-534-2195. That's Moosa Cricket Stadium in Pearland, Texas. I would say it's gotten better in some regards since you left. I would say there's certain things that could be better. (laughs) They're not utopian. Let's just say that, right? What is the point if they're not going to take, if you're not going to take control of that property, like just give it all to India then. They have the people that want to do it. They have the know-how, like let the suits run it in the United States as far as like what it means for money making in the United States. But like we were joking about it earlier, but like get the clean feed of the of the game to India who can distribute it. Like, well, I think again, fine. in terms of the culture standpoint, right? The word culture, again, further to the point, the time I spent in Bangalore was the most enjoyable time I had in my 18 month stint being anchored in Bristol. Because when I was in Bangalore, you were surrounded by cricket and cricket aficionados and people who had a, an extreme passion for cricket. And there was this zest for work and wanting to produce content. And it was there from the time you walked in to the time you left. And even after you left, you would hang out with these people after work. There was a social atmosphere, right? You would go out, 
to get drinks or you go out to get dinner with these people after work, you were, and it was, it wasn't like a drag, right? You wanted to be around these people outside of work. You wanted to take part in the bonds and building relationships with these people inside, outside of work. Whereas in Connecticut, and I think this is what I was trying to articulate before that I didn't really do a good job of is more of the fact that again, because there's only two or three of us, right? We're alone. And when we're done with a shift or we're done with world cup pilots or whatever, you leave and who do you who do you go to talk to to hang out with who who can you socialize with to talk about what you just did early in the day there's nobody there's who God can relate bless the esc uh the fc guys <laughs> that really tried and some of them they did take an interest in cricket and like because i think because like i was so excited about it and paul was so excited about it and because cricket's like an excellent sport that's like not that hard to follow actually like they were like oh yeah that is cool like we're playing little like tape ball foam ball cricket all of us the ESPN FC guys included like in the basement while we're waiting for stuff to happen and they're enjoying it but like that is like I imagine like one percent of well, what it yeah. could have been and, and so to be fair those guys in general like you said before Americans are open-minded I've never been in an experience where people were like oh get that cricket away from here this sucks or this is boring people like Rob Moore or Alex Coppola and there's others who I, I can't remember right now at the moment, but there, there were enough people in the ESPN FC environment who were extremely, extremely open, receptive, and at times would even help out if we were short staffed, which was almost all the time. Um, and we needed help getting the content out. Sometimes Alex or Rob would pitch in and cut a cricket highlight, not really having much grasp of the sport beyond the dialogues that we they would absorb by osmosis being around us in person in the editing bay, but they had developed enough of an appreciation. We're like, Hey, like we're watching this, we're around Jason, we're around Peter, we're around Kyle. Like I'll, I'll take a crack at editing a clip because I can recognize what a wicket is. I can identify that and cut it and clip it and put it into uh, the server and our uh, sixes, whatever. And they, they, they were enthusiastic about it. But again, that's like a handful of people. Whereas like, if you're, gonna, if, yeah. if you're, if you're working at NFL or NBA or baseball, you can lead at the end of a shift. Everyone. And you, you've got like 40, 50, 100 people that you could, you can pick from to go have a drink with or go get a dinner with and, you know, chew the fat on what you've just done work-wise that day. And I just in process that we didn't really have that experience that is typical of a lot of other ESPN employees who are working on different sports. And that, that was, I think, something that was unfortunate and something that if there was one thing I could change about working in Connecticut, like you said, I, I enjoyed my time getting, like you said, getting an opportunity to cut highlights and work on cricket. Who can turn that down, right? It was kind of the ancillary stuff that I think you take for granted in a work culture because there were only two or three of us working on cricket in an operation of 6,000 people. It's like, who did, who did we have to go to outside of the shift? It's like, it's not yeah. like, you know, and, and again, and the other part of, about this I would want to point out is that in ESPN culture, you know, we talk about like Rob Moore, Alex Coppola. People are receptive. If we're going to name check them. We'll check uh, Jason Gomez, Adam Peterson. But Gomez was amazing. I love Gomez. Who didn't love Jason Gomez? That guy was awesome. You have a culture where everybody's there is ostensibly the best at what they do, right? And so when I would have interactions with people in other sports, from time to time, the, the opportunities that I did have, they would be very interested and very positive, optimistic in terms of what I would try to communicate to them about cricket and why they should tune into a World Cup when we were building up to the 2015 World Cup and even leading up to the 2014 T20 World Cup before you got there. People were very, very receptive in terms of wanting to help promote content and, and understand why it was important to promote the content and, and not feel like, oh, we're this 
video or this article is invading the front page of ESPN.com, it's like, oh, this is important. Like we should be putting this on ESPN.com. This is a big deal. They would be very, very receptive to that. But I would always have to keep in mind, and, and that this was communicated to me very early on, that, yeah, we're excited for you and we want to support your sport. But like, please don't come into my office and chew my ear off all day about cricket because I have to work on tennis or I have to work on basketball or I have to work on baseball or football. Like I'm a specialist in what I do too. And like, I can't continue being a specialist in my field within the ESPN universe. If I'm listening to you natter on about cricket for the next two hours, like, yeah, we're just like the cricket nuts that the lovable cricket nuts that love their stuff that they do their thing in the basement. And we like, no, but, but it's more to the point of like, Hey, we're spending like eight, eight hours, 10 hours, 12 hours, 14 hours, completely consumed by cricket right guess what the nfl guys the nba guys the baseball guys the basketball guys they're spending eight hours 12 hours 14 hours 16 hours completely consumed by basketball or nfl or baseball or tennis if it's an nfl guy is he gonna have time to mess around with the cricket guys no because he's he's working to be the best that at, he can be as an nfl beat reporter and writer and television analyst and all that so i like early on i went from being very gung-ho to like wanting to like go into the cafeteria and just crash you know every lunch table and say hey Keyshawn johnson like let me tell you about cricket or you know whoever else like here yeah here i'm going to tell you about cricket and why you should love it it's like well Keyshawn's kind of busy with his nfl stuff like i i don't really think it's going to help ed Keyshawn really be enthusiastic about cricket if i'm bombarding him when he's trying to like study and prep for his upcoming nfl segment that he's got to film and so like as much as i wanted to like spread the gospel of cricket i had to like come to grips really early on with like i've got to stay in my lane to a certain extent because everybody else is staying in their lane too like are they was my thought and i never was like so interested about like talking to people at espn about cricket as much as I, I always thought the way it was like, if it makes money, people will love it or you for doing that thing. Like that was my mindset. Like I'm, I was acutely aware of like the thing that whatever you want has to be profitable for ESPN or else it's just never going to work. So I thought that that was my way to do it. it was like convince them that it's a money making property. And then like people will become interested in it within the company solely for that reason, if nothing else. So having gone through these experiences, you realized after a certain point, you didn't really want to stay on beyond your contract. Once you left, did you feel you had made the right decision in the first place to come there? Did you regret coming to work for ESPN and and Crick Info? Or did you feel like it was something that it was worthwhile and you were happy to have the experience? I would do it again. If, If I had to do it ever again, I'd absolutely do it again. It was excellent. I was young. I bullshitted my way into a job at ESPN doing the thing, like covering the thing I love. I learned a lot. I also, I have got, I've got to shout out Jenny Rutherford, who I used to think she was difficult to work with, but she really did give me like a true understanding and appreciation and a love for like reporting and video in the context of sport. And it was very challenging at the beginning working with Jenny for me. Um, but she really did help me grow as a person actually. And I'm very appreciative about that. If you would have asked me at six months into ESPN, I would have been like, no, I hate her. And I don't understand what she's doing here. Jenny, Jenny, somebody who would have been wrong. 
Jenny is somebody who has very high standards. Jenny's no longer at ESPN. Jenny Rutherford was at ESPN, I think, for at least a decade. She was a senior. I forget her exact title. I mean, there was no title that could encapsulate. She was everything. a producer, right? But like, she was she, officially she producer in game, right? Yeah. But she did like everything under the sun. She was she was the heartbeat of that whole operation with ESPN. It been a shit show. Straddling, well, straddling I mean, with like more of a shit show. Well. If if you take her out, if you think it was bad, take her out and think think where the, the place would have been without. That's, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, okay. and I mean, like we butted heads, and one day I cut a whole county highlight. It was a knots game versus someone. She watched it. She's like, "Nope, it's trash." Recut the whole thing. But you say you say that, but I experienced that too. She she had very high high standards, so I learned from her immediately. No BS. If she didn't like something, she'd tell you straight to your face. There was no mess around. And she had high standards. And if you you did something wrong or it sucked, all right, I don't care how long it took you to do it. You're redoing it. Do it again. Do it the right way. This is what we expect of you. And so she, she because she set that high standard, she improved the quality of everything around her immensely. And I would say yeah, my initial interactions with her, I, I would get frustrated. But there was nobody I would rather have in terms of somebody who I, I would want by my side or somebody who would, I would want, you know, in charge of me or leading the ship than Jenny, because she just demanded high standards, high quality. And it, the yeah, she did not play. It. And it was really great. Uh, I mean, she made me better at my job and she made, she gave me like, she, she, she did give me a lot. And I, I just didn't want, I didn't want to go through this without saying that because like, I'm sure a lot of people don't feel that way. But also, like, maybe a lot of people don't want to be good at what they do. So, hundred percent. So, besides being a, a USA under fifteen representative, and besides having worked for ESPN Crick Info as a multimedia editor, one of the other things that people identify you with is your family connection to Mohibullah Archiwal, who people may remember in Jared Kimber's story. That was in the Cricket Monthly in September 2017, titled The Shahid Afridi of Kansas. And it focuses that whole story. It's an incredible story. I'm sure most people who go to Crick Info would have read it. And not just one time. It was an incredible feature that Jared did, like a lot of things that Jared does. This story in particular talks about Archie's journey from Afghanistan. He was he worked as a translator for the military and his journey trying to get into the U.S. and the connection that he has with you and your family. Talk about that, especially now in the context of what's going on recently with the American withdrawal from Afghanistan and the chaos around that and a lot of the attention that was has been paid to kind of the, the visa snafu fiasco with regards to all the translators and people who had helped the American military basically being left behind you know full well what that experience is all about having that connection with Archie and all the struggles that he went through so tell us about Archie and how you first came into contact with him and and what he means to you and your family first of all if you haven't read Jared's piece about Archie um, I highly encourage you to read it it's pinned to the top of my Twitter I don't know that it'll ever come down on a personal note as far as like things I did at ESPN that I'm super proud of getting Jared to write a story about him is the to me the most important thing I did while I was there it's the thing that makes me the happiest and I didn't do much except for like hey Jared I think I have a story that you might like what do you think radio silence for six weeks and he's like yep like that 
radio silence for six weeks. Here's a first draft. Anyway, so I, I'm really, really proud of that. Not that I did anything, but it's a story that I thought deserved to be told. And it's a story that like, I'm very happy that ESPN published because like, yeah, it's about cricket, but it's like cricket is the language in which we could express what was going on is the way I feel about it. So if you haven't read it, read it. It's incredible. Archie showed up in Wichita one day and the lady that was handling his case at the IRC asked him what he liked to do. He was like, I know how to kill people and I like to play cricket. She was like, well, I know the, the only cricket guy. I get a phone call from my dad and he's like, what are you doing tonight? Nothing. He's like, why don't you come down? Let's get in the nets. I'm bringing this dude from Afghanistan. I'm picking him up now. So I meet Archie. He's very quiet. He likes to play cricket. He balls fast-ish. It was a great time. We spent a couple of hours just in the nets until the sun went down. A couple of weeks later, my parents were like, why don't you just stop paying rent at your apartment and move in? They bought him a suit. My mom got him a job at Walgreens and, and they really did adopt him. Um, he became a citizen in 20, 2020 in time to vote, which was very cool. And he currently lives in Sacramento, California. But like you said, he, he is a translator, was a translator for a couple of different branches of the U.S. Armed Forces, as well as like the Italians and maybe the Georgians. He has lost people in his life to the Taliban. And when I say that, I mean like the Taliban have murdered people close to Archie because of his work that he did for the United States. And so at the present moment, he's mortified about what could happen to his, his family, uh, specifically his brothers, due to the fact that like, he grew up with some people that would become part of the Taliban establishment. They know who he is. They know who his family is. And so he is he's incredibly worried that something's going to happen to them. And he's lost enough people to the Taliban because of his work for the United States. Like, it's not something that, it's not like out of the realm of possibility that something bad could happen again. I've been talking to him a lot. Uh, we put together a letter to all of the senators and the, the two senators from California, as well as all of the house reps and state and local officials about like trying to get uh, a visa process fast-tracked for at least his brother to be able to be like sponsored as, as an immigrant to the United States. Now that Archie's a citizen, he can sponsor people, direct family members, right, to, to immigrate. The process that usually takes like uh, up to a year and a half was done in six weeks. I think maybe Senator Feinstein had something to do with that, which is great. But the next part is going to be a while as well because now it's on to like the interview process. And like, uh, I'm not sure that anybody's around in Kabul to interview Archie's brother to get him over here let alone like all of the other obstacles that stand in this way. There was some talk about trying to get him to Turkey legally, but I mean, it's heartbreaking. It feels like 20 years for what? And then to have such a personal connection to somebody like I think of his family, to be in a position of danger that I hopefully will never understand. And man, it's just like, it just really sucks. Like he's had, he's, he's taken bullet wounds for the United States, been blown up by a couple IDs and yeah, he made it out, and his his life is pretty good right now. But the fact that like what he had to do, or rather what he did to to have that life, is almost certainly going to put people he loves in danger. It's just, it sucks, and it's fixable, which is the more frustrating part. But it's just such a monumental task to get it done. That I and I'm only like adjacent to the situation, but it must be really, really difficult for him. I mean, that whole process you just talked about, 
the layers and the red tape that's involved getting an interview, like you said, the U.S. embassy has been abandoned. There's nobody there anymore. So realistically, does he feel like he has any hope of getting his family to the U.S.? I mean, like he has to, right? He does. He's looking for ways. I think the answer is, yeah, he, he, he's got some hope. Whether or not anything happens, like it remains to be seen. And like, it's such a fluid and serious situation. And like, who does know anything? about that situation right now like honestly like i mean i try to i listen to pod save the world and i read the news and you know especially about like uh in the cricket context of afghanistan but like it's not good and nobody knows when much else i mean he has to be optimistic because like if he just resigns himself to the fate that like the fact that like the taliban will kill his family like but that's an impossible headspace to live in you know what i mean so he's got to be optimistic. He is also aware, acutely aware of the reality, which is it's incredibly difficult to make that happen, especially now. From your conversations with him, has he even contemplated going back to try and bring people with him directly, or is it just too dangerous? One day, I saw a photo of uh, Archie on Facebook hugging Rashid Khan. And I was like, bro, how did you meet Rashid Khan? There's really only one way that you would have been in the same room with him. He's like, yeah, I went back. I didn't tell anyone. I told mom two weeks after I got back and she flipped out. And I was like, yeah, I can imagine. So he has gone back. I think right now it's not, it's, I haven't asked him. He hasn't said anything, but I'm sure that that's just like the death sentence, I assume. What is he doing now in California? He's working for the state. He had to get out of, he was like, he was working for the IRC, um, the International Refugee Committee to like uh, go through the process of once in, once a refugee lands in the United States, getting them a job and getting them housing and, and get, get, making them self-sufficient. He was doing that for the IRC as well as doing it directly for the state of California. But the Afghan community in Sacramento really started to get to back channel messages from his family. As if you, if you read the piece and I don't want to spoil it, there's quite a big drama there. And the last thing he wants is getting like back channel messages from people he used to know in Afghanistan. So we had to completely step out of that. To my knowledge, like the very small extent of what I know that he does, I think I think he, he works for the state of California, helping people that have been like recently let go from their jobs with like their options for like train uh, like transitioning into another job or like softening the blow of being fired for your jobs, so, like your your like welfare options, your training options, like what you can do after you've been let go from from like from a job. And he's doing that. He works the state. He got a job at, at the state department. And they said, great, you just got to go to Kabul. And he was like, nope, not doing that. Since the story, it's been four years now. So since then, besides the fact that he's now a U.S. citizen and the fact that he's working for the state of California, what else should people know about him and what he's doing or has done since? I think that Archie is a shiny example of what the United States can produce. Um, not even like, yeah, his story is incredible. The crazy amount of stuff he had to go through to get here or to like live any semblance of like what you or I would think is a normal life. He is an exemplary human who has done and had to deal with more stuff than I can ever imagine. He is a product of the America that I know and love. And if anybody ever has any doubts about like what it looks like to be a refugee or an immigrant from another country to come to America, like Archie is the poster child. I'm not signing him up for that, but you couldn't do better that name he's trying to buy a house right now his life's really taken off in a way that i don't know if you would have asked like a young archie if you could have ever 
it seems like pretty mundane to you and me maybe but like he's living it up man he's loving it he's just living the dream in sacramento california living it the american dream 100%. living the american dream yeah literally trying to anyway again for anybody who hasn't read it the story is called the shahid afridi of kansas it's about mohibal archiewal that's archie's full name and it's written by Jared Kimber. It's dated September 13th, 2017. So it's just over four years old, but it's still very, very relevant, especially to what's been happening in recent times with the U.S. withdrawal of Afghanistan and how it's impacted people like Archie or other people who've been in Archie's shoes in terms of former translators for the military. So by all means, go and check that out. All right, Jason, time for the favorite 11. And before we get to the favorite 11, I want to remind everybody that the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast is presented by Dream Cricket. Dream Cricket Pavilion Shop can help you fill up all your cricket kit requirements from top-of-the-line English willow bats made by all the top manufacturers, as well as helmets, gloves, pads, jerseys, highlight DVDs, books, and more. Get 10% off all orders over $400 using coupon code DCUSA. That's DCUSA. Go to shop.dreamcricket.com to take advantage of that offer today. Dream Cricket Academy is located at 400 Apgar Drive in Somerset, New Jersey, just a mile off of exit 12 on Interstate 287. For more information, call 908-938-3787 or email cricket at dreamcricket.com. We're doing a primetime under the lights version of the favorite 11 with Jason Fox. You ready, Jason? I try not to think about this at all. So yeah, I'm ready. Well, if you've listened or watched the Todd Myers episode, in addition to others, you should know some of these questions. First up, since you are a, a former international cricketer for USA, your favorite roommate on any cricket tour? Uh, I spent a lot of time rooming with Abhijit Joshi, like a lot. We played together for Central East, like uh, so Abhijit was my favorite roommate. I've heard that he is now a licensed yogi. Yeah, man, he's super into it. He invited me to his wedding. I could not go, but it really does kind of like fit. His, he's very calm, calculated kind of dude. And that's what I hear. And I think it's like a perfect fit for him, honestly. He also has back trouble, which I think is what kind of like dealt with his career a little bit. So it's probably a good fit. He's one of the great junior cricket talents that USA had that unfortunately never made that transition to senior level, but he was a dominant force on the under-19 scene and the under-15 scene. And, and like you said, out of the, out of the Chicago area, the Central East. So you definitely would have spent a lot of time around him. Obviously, Joshi. I, I stayed at his house a, a lot of times, not even on tour. <laughs> I try and tailor a few of these questions to make them thematic for my guests. As a former ESPN employee, and we did spend quite a bit of time talking about this, your favorite menu item in the ESPN cafeteria Shoot, man, I really didn't get I, I didn't get to eat a lot of like actual proper food. Fried egg and bacon sandwich in the morning is uh, is pretty great. There's a lot of great things. Like you said earlier, you mentioned Pasta Tuesdays. There's so many great things. Well, so I never made the trip to the other campus to have Pasta Tuesdays while we were living in like the food desert that we were living in. Um, and honestly, the food that was coming out of those trailers is so forgettable. I literally have never thought about it until you asked me this. The two months or whatever I spent in the nice cap was excellent. But for the life of me, honestly, I remember rocking up and getting breakfast sandwiches because they were very good and cooked fresh. Aside from that, though, I honestly could not tell you a single other dish that I had in the calf. I'm sure I know I ate ox, but I don't know. Your favorite 
city or country that you have toured for cricket? Ahmedabad. I went on a CCA tour of India. We played in Motera. I spent some time with my foreign exchange student, Prajit's family, while I was there, who is from Ahmedabad. I have there's a large Gujarati like Gujarati community around me. It was my first time I was ever in India. I'm sure you well in Bangalore it's probably not like this, but like in Gujarat, lots of people look at you if you're white because they're not used to that. So that was weird, but like it was it was great. I, I enjoyed every second of it. I'm also uh, I went there fairly recently to Prajit's wedding. I guarantee you, I'm some dude's uh, phone wallpaper that thinks I'm James Faulkner, 100%. Your favorite cricket ground experience that you've ever had as a player or as a fan? I got to go to the 2007 Ashes series. I went to either the third or fourth day at the SCG. I saw Shane Warren make like 90 odd before he got out. And I, you know, Shane Warren is my, my, my favorite. Well, like, I mean, keeps going downhill, but like he was my favorite cricketer. If you put him in a glass box and like don't let him say anything, really, really, really enjoy the cricket that he played, but that's about it. So yeah, the Ashes series where they completely destroyed India or sorry, England in 2007, third, I think it was the third day at the SCG. Um, it's also the first time I ever saw like a professional cricket match in person. I was like 14, uh, was there studying for a year, took the train into the city by myself, called my dad. I was like, hey, you watching the cricket? And he's like, yeah, I was like, I'm there. He's like, what, where's your aunt? not here she let you do it by yourself like yeah but it's starting got to go by as far as playing goes playing with Tara is pretty sweet playing at the icl ground and in, in all is pretty sweet but i'm gonna it's the scg for me so that new year's test 2007 that, that where they completed the five nil sweep that would be number one for you with the scg yeah your favorite cricketer of all time it is shane warren because of his cricket and what he was an, he's an incredible once in a generation cricketer. I wish he'd shut up, but he is my he's the reason I the reason I think I fell in love with cricket is Shane Warren for sure. You're a favorite non cricket athlete of all time. Kobe Bryant. He just he's got something, had something. He's just great. Your favorite place to eat out on tour. I love to eat McDonald's when I'm traveling internationally because I find and I'm sure you're living in England, you find the same thing. Well, maybe not now, but um, food is better outside of the United States. Just like whole neck and crop as a physical thing, it is better. I'm not talking about how it's cooked. It's just like you get an apple at the supermarket here, you get an apple at the supermarket overseas, it's better overseas. So I like to eat at McDonald's because it's the same stuff for the most part, but it's better. I have been to probably 500 KFCs outside of America. I've only been to a KFC once in the US and I vowed never again to go to a KFC in the US. I totally it's, feel that. It's very, it's very weird because- It's diff- it is a different thing overseas I, KFC well, I, I specifically. Just, I, I feel like there's pressure on the franchisees overseas because there have been some experiences with certain companies, McDonald's included, where if they don't make the food as it's designed to be made or there's food poisoning or a bad experience, the head office will not hesitate to yank these franchises out of a certain country or yank the entire operation out of a certain country, which has happened. I know McDonald's famously has done it in a few places in the West Indies. And so there's a huge amount of pressure on these fast food chains outside of the U.S. to make sure all the food is fresh and to a high standard. And there's no risk of contamination or food poisoning because if they know if they screw up, it's not just their own franchise. They could jeopardize the entire operation in that entire country that they're in. And so because of that, the chain restaurants that you go to, if you go outside of the U.S., 
99 times out of 100, the food is hotter, fresher, tastier than you will find anywhere in any U.S. location. So I'm not surprised to hear you say McDonald's with a caveat asterisk outside of the U.S. McDonald's. No, I will eat I, only if I have to. Like, literally, there's nothing else. I will eat McDonald's in the United States. But McDonald's overseas while I'm on tour, whether it's, like, uh, professional, like, not professionally, but, like, for cricket or for pleasure, at least one McDonald's stop. At least one. All right. Usually I ask if people prefer Coke or Pepsi here, but I, I've swapped this out because you're a coffee specialist nowadays. Where is your favorite place to go get a cup of coffee? There's a small chain. There's like four or five stores um, in Northwest Arkansas. It's called the uh, Onyx Coffee Labs. Currently the like the last uh, U.S. barista champion, Andrea Allen, uh, she owns those with her husband. I have spent... $500 at Onyx in the last couple of years. Never one time have I had even a mediocre drink. It is always perfect. And I mean like perfect. And I've been to all their locations. It's excellent. They build coffee palaces. I know the economics of a coffee shop. I'm not sure how that works, but their buildings are beautiful. And the coffee is like, it is the best in the country, I think. But to answer your other question, Mexican Coke. Define Mexican Coke. What what constitutes a Mexican Coke, please? A glass bottle in Spanish with real sugar. Interesting. I might I might get a chance to discover that. I'm supposed to go to Mexico City for the ICC Women's T20 qualifier in, in October. All right, bro. You, you've got uh, like American Coca-Cola full of high fructose corn syrup, and you have like glass bottle Coca-Cola straight from Mexico with that pure sugar. It's not even a contest. Not a contest at all. I'll have to buy a bottle or two or 10 or 20. It's excellent. Costco, I, I buy them at Costco. It's just so much better. I won't, I literally won't drink soda at all except for Mexican glass bottle Coke. Your favorite pizza topping. We know your favorite pizza topping. So when I was living in Connecticut, I was exposed to incredible independent pizza. I don't think the entire time I lived there, I saw a Domino's, Pizza Hut, Papa John's or any of that. The anywhere in the Northeast, anywhere in like New nowhere. York, New Jersey, like, Connecticut, nowhere. you cannot find they, a they chain don't exist. restaurant. It's only mom and pop pizza shops. Yeah. So I understand the importance for the clam pizza for Connecticut. Not my favorite. Spinach ricotta. My favorite pizza. Your favorite movie. Peter likes cheese pizza. I am. Well, I am a charter member of the Kevin McAllister Cheese Pizza Society. I'm a very proud card carrying member. Your favorite movie of all time. I really like The Departed a lot. It's unfairly maligned as a quote-unquote Lifetime Achievement Award winner for Martin Scorsese. I love The Departed. I think it's outstanding. I mean, it's like a remake of like a like a Hong Kong film. I don't care. I don't care. No, I don't care either. It's like excellent. I love Martin Sheen. I love The West Wing, so I'm literally down for anything Martin Sheen's in. It's just great. It is, it is really good. I really do love The Departed. The whole, my favorite scene, and it's one of my favorite scenes in any movie probably in the last 10, 15 years, is when the Leonardo DiCaprio character is hiding in the movie theater and Jack Nicholson comes in, has the conversation with Matt Damon, Matt Damon walks out and then there's the, the chase. It's like a slow walk chase where Leonardo DiCaprio was following him through the streets and there's the whole cat and mouse game. That's one of the best scenes I think I've ever seen in a movie. And the transition afterwards is really nice too. Ah, there's just so much to love about the movie. All right, good choice. Last but not least, your favorite show to binge watch on any streaming service or DVD box set? What's your go-to to to pass the time? As a whole, not right now, it would be The West Wing. I understand that, like, 
it has problems as a show and like Aaron Sorkin is Aaron Sorkin and like there are Sorkin things about it and um, it's it is definitely like fantasy but I discovered it while I was at ESPN and I fell in love with the idea that there are people in power who want to do good and excellent things and like that's their mission and things that I think are correct and just and people like really, really try hard to do that. So I will watch the first four seasons of The West Wing before the last couple of years. I was watching it like once a year. I think it's excellent. It's got a lot. It's got a lot of talent in it. Jason Fox's favorite eleven. Jason, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. I'll give you a little final word. Anything you else you want to say that you think people should know about you as a cricketer outside of cricket? Anything you want to share? If you have the ability to introduce an American person, young, old, black, white, any color, it's irrelevant. doesn't matter if they're a male or a female or anyone else. Like, take that opportunity to show them, like, something that is, is really excellent. And if you're in a position to foster the growth of the game at, at any level, like, the only way that we get to stop having these rant sessions about, like, how bad it is is people like that, like, just doing something that's all so you should feel encouraged to do it jason fox you've been very very generous with your time as anybody who will watch this will know you've turned from day into night yeah anybody that watches this has been generous with their time going from one day to another afternoon into evening thank you so much jason i really appreciate it yeah it was a blast it was good catching up and, and thanks for having me i really enjoyed it my thanks to Jason Fox for coming on to share his experiences about his time at ESPN Creek Info. And that's Jason's story. Not everybody's story is like that. Jason has had some good, some bad, some ugly, and a whole lot of in between. And I'm glad that he was able and willing to come on to share his experiences in a forthright and honest manner in the way he did. And also to give an update on what's been happening lately with Mohibal Archwall and it's fantastic to hear that he has since become a U.S. citizen and is working hard to help the lives of others through local government in the state of California so keep going Archie. Want to remind everybody subscribe to the podcast on Patreon if you haven't done so already I appreciate everybody who has whether it's coming on board as a patriot an eagle a captain. There's so many different ways to help contribute to the podcast, to help keep it going from week to week, and I appreciate everybody who has done so thus far. And also, remind everybody to subscribe to the podcast on YouTube in video format or in audio format on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Anchor FM, Apple Podcasts, and many other podcasting platforms so that you get the latest edition of the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast when it hits the internet. That's it for me. I'm Peter Delapena reminding everybody... God bless America, and God bless American cricket.